Hi, Paul, and welcome to Scotonomics. So you're a professor um, of agribusiness and economics at Lincoln University in Lincoln in New Zealand and a member of the Wellbeing Alliance. Um, could you tell our audience a little bit about your economic journey or your journey to being where you are today? Okay, I tell people that my journey to be an economist started with my grandfather, who was born in Glasgow and came out as a young man to Dunedin in New Zealand. And he met my grandmother, they fell in love, they got married and they conceived my father. And this was 1933. And three months later, my grandfather became unemployed at the height of the Great Depression. And he didn't have another full-time job for six years. Right. And, and then in 1939, he did get a job, it was, acting as a carpenter for uh, the centennial of New Zealand exhibition in Wellington and the war broke out. And so he lost what money he had at that point and had to start again for the second time. So my father grew up without much to uh, live on and uh, it was a struggle. Uh, he left school as early as he could to earn income for his family. And so when I finished my education, one of the big questions I wanted to answer was, how is it that the economy can be designed to better help people create lives that they value and have reason to value? And, and that's been my, my life journey. Wow, yes, that's a great life journey. New Zealand government became a member of uh, the wellbeing economy of governments in 2018. Were you involved in that? I wasn't directly, but there are three of us who are organising the Wellbeing Economy Alliance in New Zealand. And Susie is one of my colleagues. She was the New Zealand civil servant that was most closely involved in that initiative. How has that changed the economy of New Zealand since then? You know, what are the notable wins for you? So the main one has been in two directions. One is about respecting planetary boundaries. So the climate emergency means that all of us has to get off our addiction to fossil fuels. And so the current government has stopped issuing licenses for offshore exploration of more oil and gas. And this is symbolic of a, a stronger commitment by the government to redesign the economy to stay within planetary boundaries. And then the second aspect is that New Zealand is a rich country. We are part of the OECD family of rich countries, but within the country, there's a lot of disparity. Uh, there are people who are enjoying good, comfortable, enriched lives. And there are other communities that are on the margins of the economy where you know, single mothers are working two jobs to try and earn enough income to feed their family and struggling. And so the government has tried to address the issues around child poverty, uh, around poor mental health, uh, about expanding the capabilities of the indigenous Maori people of New Zealand to participate fully in the economy. And it's a journey. I wouldn't say that we have solved everything 
just by this commitment to well-being economy and well-being budgets. But I think we are moving in a direction that is a better pathway than we have been for the last 30 years. I mean, that's huge, really huge that you don't explore for oil now. What is your situation in New Zealand as far as oil exploration is concerned? Is your oil, um, is it nationalised or did you have to say no to private companies? It's, it's saying no to private companies. So uh, let's not exaggerate. The companies that have licences now are still operating those licences but the government has stopped issuing new licenses. Now, most of the oil and gas is offshore of a particular part of the country, and that province, Taranaki, has built its economy around energy. And so the government has initiated a program that it's calling Just Transitions, where it's saying it's all very well for us as a country to express our commitment to the Paris Agreement in this way, but what are we doing as a country to ensure that the full impact of that is not being borne by just Taranaki? And this is different. In the past, it would have been a change of direction, and now we leave it up to the private sector to do the best they can. Now the government is trying to engage in a partnership with local communities to find better pathways forward. That's fantastic news and particularly relevant for me as I live in Aberdeen in Scotland, which is in yeah. a similar situation. Yeah, and that, that's yes, a similar but... process to our government as well, which is, you know, has a Just Transition Commission and um, is fully embedding Just Transition into the economic transformation of the country. So that's a similarity. Um, I would like to pick up on some other similarities as we get a little bit more in depth to the, the New Zealand economy. Um, New Zealand and Scotland have got almost round about the same population, just hovers round just above 5 million. Um, but New Zealand's three or four times the size of Scotland. So kind yes. of there's similarities on, on that end, end, end there. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit more about what drives the New Zealand economy, uh, you know, main exports, um, how the economy operates in terms of trade? Yes. So we have a lot of space. I mean, you've made that point per person. And a third of the country is in the National Conservation Estate. So it's set aside for recreation and scientific and conservation purposes. Our history economically really began with the discovery of refrigerated shipping. Mm. And we became the UK's farm. So we would grow lamb and, uh, and then beef and, and dairy products, uh, wool originally, but that's phased out over the years. And during the two world wars, you know, we would supply all that we could produce to Britain as part of our contribution to the, the war effort. And, and we built up a, a prosperous economy under that regime. And in fact, the place where I work in New Zealand, the AERU, the Agribusiness and Economics Research Unit, was founded by the government when the UK started to move towards Europe. And it became obvious that we would have to diversify. And, and we have diversified, but still three quarters of our merchandise exports is food and fiber products. Uh, and that's been our strong comparative advantage. We're quite unusual in the OECD family of rich countries because so much of our economy still depends on the food and fiber sector. 
Now, we're a long way away from the rest of the world, and that's why refrigerated shipping was so important to us. It's an advantage, so we don't have to worry about acid rain or, you know, we're, we're a nuclear-free country. So there are strong advantages in being distant from some of the major population centres. But it means that manufacturing isn't very important to us. We're, we're not manufacturing cars, for example. And so the other part of our economy is around the knowledge economy. So creating new software, providing business services overnight to companies and governments in Europe and North America. And so those two aspects, the, the, the land-based industries and the knowledge-based industries, they are the drivers of the local economy. Okay. I'm really interested to get an idea of when and how quickly the New Zealand economy was able to transition from being heavily dependent on Great Britain to moving towards servicing the rest of the of of the globe was that a very gradual process or did that happen quite quickly well we started early so britain didn't go into europe until the 1st of january 1973 and our research center was founded in 1962 so we're just coming up to our 60th birthday there's a big party next month you're welcome any of your listeners find themselves in New Zealand, come and celebrate with us. And so 1962 to 1972, we were, that's a decade of preparation and we were starting to diversify not just our markets, but our products. So started thinking about venison, uh, kiwi fruit now is a huge export from New Zealand that nobody was thinking about in the 1970s. I'm, I'm one so, of the big players there. <laughs> yeah, oh, great, great. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful product. And, and, but by 1984, the perception was okay, we've done quite a bit in the last 20 years, but we are falling behind the OECD average. And so we introduced a program of economic reforms that tried to internationalize the New Zealand economy to make us more responsive to international prices. Was this falling yes. behind in terms of a GDP growth or trade? Exactly that. GDP per capita. Yes. Mm -hmm. Traditional economic growth means producing more, <laughs> you know, more cows, more, more milk, more exports. And, and the view was that the government had tried to cushion the blow of Britain going into Europe. So it had subsidized agricultural production. And so we were continuing to produce more, but we weren't selling more. And we, we were responding to government regulation rather than to market signals. And what happened is the economy split into two. So the people who were well-placed to take advantage of the liberalization of the economy including the companies, have done really well. But unemployment increased from 4% to 10%, and the indigenous unemployment rate, Māori unemployment rate, went up to 25%. Now, 25% was what unemployment was at the height of the Great Depression. So, so this is my grandfather and my father's story happening in my own lifetime, to indigenous communities around the country. It's a typical J curve. So we stopped assembling cars, we stopped light manufacturing, and economically, there was no way we could justify continuing those subsidized industries 
but it meant that we threw a whole lot of people whose only skills were in those industries onto the labor market. We reduced benefits at the same time, so people were desperate for work. And so we created a pathway where the economy created this huge number of low-skilled, low-wage jobs, and that is the legacy we still have. So this is why we have child poverty so high at the moment, is because if you, if you had been in the freezing works for export or in a car assembly plant or assembling TVs for the local market, you were earning good income to support a family. A month later, you had no income support and you had to accept any job that was going. And so that meant low-skilled jobs that didn't pay a living wage, just paid the minimum wage. And, and so the, the children who were born in the 1980s are now the parents today and now the grandparents today who grew up with very little in the way of material resources didn't complete advanced education. Their children often didn't advance in education. We have in New Zealand what we call a long tail. This is the people who emerge from school with very few qualifications. And in fact, really all they have learnt before they were allowed to leave school was how to be present in an institution without actively engaging in the institution. And so they take that into the workplace. And so you have employers saying, no, these people have no skills, but they don't really want to be here. Well, mm. yes, that's what we've spent the last 12 months teaching them to do by giving them compulsory education, but wasn't really suited to developing skills that match the job opportunities that exist in local markets. Uh, and, and that really highlights the need for a just transition this time round when you're decarbonizing the economy because you know as you said with the area that's relying on energy but the whole economy has to decarbonize and we have to move people towards um, other areas that are having a, a less an impact on the climate and on the environment so it's really important that we do that in a strategic manner which is similar in the UK wasn't done in the early 80s when we moved away from manufacturing and from coal it was just left to the private services and, and most people would agree that that was a that was a significant mistake that was made that's absolutely the language that the government is using and and in the agricultural sector there has been a large growth in dairy farming uh, particularly in a couple of places in around the country in the south island of new zealand and we weren't ready for it and so that means that the waterways are being damaged by the the the, the dairy farms and people have invested millions of dollars in milk processing and uh, milking facilities on farms and now we are looking at well what do we do with the nitrates that are leaching into the waterways and are damaging the waterways and we've got 30 years of that accumulating if we don't do something now it's going to continue to grow for another 30 years so what is the legacy we are leaving for our children and how can government partner with producers to find a pathway that is a just transition to a better future could I extend on that in terms of the impact that, that these types of industries, agriculture, um, is, is doing to New Zealand in terms of its soil and its environment? Because, you know, 
obviously cows, pigs, lamb, you know, they're not indigenous to New Zealand. They were transplanted there and um, mainly because the, the, the Brits were used to were used to growing them in the United Kingdom. But they must have caused huge problems with the amount of grazing and also the dairy and all the processes that go into um, managing uh, and, and growing these animals. Is this having a significant impact on uh, the environment in New Zealand or is it just because it's so big that it can cope with it? Yes, did I mention that we have a lot of space in yeah. New Zealand and we've set aside a third of the yeah. land for the conservation estate. So 20 years ago, the big industries in the land-based sector would say, we've set aside 30% of our land for conservation purposes we don't have to worry about conservation on the productive landscape, which is quite different from the UK, as I understand it, where, you know, you think about biodiversity and hedgerows and wildlife corridors and so on. This has come to New Zealand relatively recently, only in the last 10, 15, 20 years at the most. But the change has come not just from an awakening within New Zealand about the damage that is taking place, but our consumers and customers in international markets are starting to ask questions about how is this food produced? And, and customers are saying, I don't want to buy food that is contributing to global climate change, that is damaging waterways, that is excluding local people from being able to buy food security in their own country. And so more and more New Zealand exporters are being called to account by their consumers to tell the story about what's happening in New Zealand. And, and we've got some good stories to tell. You know, I wouldn't want you to think that, you know, it's a horrible place to live in New Zealand. It's not. There's, there's wonderful things about the natural environment. And we are more and more conscious of the damage that has been done and making change. And we want to tell that story now to the world as part of our contribution to the well-being economy movement. That's really a growing thing in the Western world is that um, uh, inquiry into provenance of food. Um, yes. that, that, you know, that's certainly changed during my lifetime as well. And I think your story about the, 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 the milk industry expanding too quickly without thought demonstrates that how economies are complex systems that need constant monitoring and long-term thinking responses as well. I mean, another thing that I discovered this morning, and I kind of knew this, but this was a, a, an academic on Radio Scotland this morning, is that um, we have a big problem in Scotland, particularly within the, the, the United Kingdom, of um, population uh, decline. Um, and it's more marked in Scotland. And I was interested to know, and uh, is your population growing or is it declining? It's growing. Yes, it continues to grow. Uh, we have had a, a reasonably generous migration policy, uh, particularly for skilled migrants that the COVID-19 pandemic has interrupted. And, and there are producers now who are struggling with labour. So traditionally, we have had schemes where workers would come from the Pacific Islands for the harvest season and, and they would be welcome and uh, would send remittances back home. Uh, it was a win-win situation by and large. Uh, some of the skilled jobs in agriculture, there were dairy farmers and managers and workers from, say, the Philippines coming to New Zealand, and that was an important part of 
the agricultural workforce. And so at the moment, we are just relaxing the constraints at the border and we are expecting to be able to welcome more migrants to New Zealand in the future. Um, so, but there are parts of New Zealand where the population decline as people move to the big cities means that there aren't the ratepayers to pay the rates to maintain the local infrastructure and roads and facilities and even things like you know drinking water and wastewater the the government is having to think about involving the national government in managing some of those resources because so many communities don't have the economic base in order to ensure that everybody has access to safe drinking water and, and again the, the economy is is broken into two groups between those wealthy regions that are saying no we're perfectly fine leave us alone you, you shouldn't be involved and the poorer communities are saying we don't have the human resources, yet alone the financial resources, to do these basic functions of local government. And so there needs to be some sort of realignment at the national level. That's a really interesting comparator. I mean, we had a situation until Brexit that we had a lot of um, labour came over from the Eastern European countries to Scotland to help with our farming industries. And and we are, you know, we're struggling with labour uh, demands. And I hear that all the time again. I listen to Radio Scotland usually every morning, you know, people saying I can't get this type of care from the National Health, this or that type yeah. of care. But we lost a lot of people to Brexit. And it's a big problem if we can't import people when our birth rates are going down. Yes. There's, a, there's another side to that coin, which is that, I said earlier that we have this long tail of young people leaving compulsory education with no qualifications. And in a way, some of these migrant workers filled that gap. And so there is an opportunity now to realign our education system so that, you know, the, the Americans called it no child left behind. But the, the, the principle that the biggest contribution to lifetime well-being is how well you do at school. And if we are not conscious of those who are struggling at school and not providing the extra resources to re-engage in education and ensure that they are spending their time at school in a way that will contribute to their lifetime well-being, then we have to pay the costs of that for generations to come. So this is something we have woken up to, I think, but it's hard to change systems at that national level. That's a big challenge. Just mentioned there about the need to increase investment and an understanding of the importance of education. I just wanted your views on um, how New Zealand is able to do that as an issuer of its own currency. And have you had any thoughts about how it be able, how would it be able to do that if it wasn't? an issue of its own currency and uh, you know let, let's say it, it shared a currency with yep. Australia what role does that play in the success of New Zealand this ability to have an issue your own currency yes we do talk occasionally about setting up a, a joint currency with Australia and and there are two ways we could do that we could simply adopt the Australian currency there's nothing stopping us from doing that Australia 
you know, to the best of my knowledge, have said that would be absolutely fine, would be very happy for you to use Australian dollars and cents. And, you know, for a long time, the exchange rate was set at one. You know, the, historically, mm. they were effectively one currency. Uh, the alternative is to set up a, a new currency jointly managed between the two countries with some sort of agreement about fiscal constraints, a, a bit like the, the euro in Europe. And I think the, the general feeling has been that that wouldn't cost us too much, but we don't see that the benefits are so great compared to other problems we have that we want to spend any time making that a priority. And, uh, and, and the Australian economy and the New Zealand economy aren't exactly the same. So the Australian economy is much more natural resource extraction and sending min minerals off to China uh, compared to our land-based economy. So from time to time, it would be uncomfortable. Uh, on the other hand, it's that sort of diversity that sometimes makes a, a, a joint currency work well. I, I think we are reasonably comfortable in New Zealand that the central bank has done a good job in managing the COVID-19 outbreak. So because we had an independent central bank, we were able to adopt an independent fiscal policy. We implemented wage subsidies to keep people engaged with employment as they weren't able to leave the house to engage in work. Uh, that decision was accommodated by the central bank. Uh, my boss is on the Monetary Policy Committee, so I have to say she's done a great job along with her colleagues. Um, so there's no real appetite in the political spectrum to join with Australia. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a bit like Canada and the United States. Maybe Scotland, you know, you have your own banknotes. There's a, there's a sense of national identity in handing over currency that belongs to you. Although, to be honest, the last time anybody handed a banknote over in a shop, <laughs> more yeah. and more it's all card transactions these days. So who knows what's down the track? But that, that's very interesting to hear from our perspective because, you know, New Zealand's a, a similar population. Um, it's very often compared to Scotland. You have your own currency and there's no real significant demand for anyone to say, let's give up all of the levers and the power that we have from issuing your own currency. And you covered a little bit there saying during the COVID pandemic, the central bank was able to was able to print was able to release money into the economy to make sure everything was fine and can continue to do that. And as I said at the start of that question, but it can also do that from infrastructure spending. It doesn't have to raise that money from taxes. It can either borrow or it can print money to be able to spend for the infrastructure spending. And I take it that's going to be a big concern as we move into the climate crisis that, you know, your government has to spend to make sure that New Zealand plays its part in climate crisis and for the just transition and reducing poverty. So they are at uh, arm's length, the, the two authorities. So the government issues the, the wellbeing budget each year, which includes its, uh, its debt program. And the central bank then makes its decisions independently about whether it will buy any of that debt. And it has a statutory responsibility to maintain price stability, but having regard to employment and stability in the exchange rate and, and the like. Um, so I don't know that I would say it's crucial because I don't think that the Minister of Finance 
would ever ring up the governor of the Reserve Bank, I mean, he's not allowed to, to say, if I invested this extra money in infrastructure, can I have your assurance that you would buy some of the debt? That's not part of the New Zealand system at all. But if the Minister of Finance had to think, if I invested in education or invested in physical infrastructure or invested in just transactions, do I have to worry that in Canberra, in Australia, the Joint Monetary Authority worried about the impact of inflation in Australia because of huge demand in minerals from China might raise interest rates, just as I'm wanting to issue more debt, then that could be a barrier to, to government action. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is this is why, uh, as far as William and I are concerned, and many others, we need fiscal independence in Scotland to give us that political independence. Because although you know we are are joined um, to England, it has a completely different economy and a completely different type of politics as well. Um, it, you know, our geography is quite different, and um, our, our issues are quite different, and. Uh, as I said earlier on, you know, we are losing a population at a faster rate. And um, you, you might be surprised to know at the time of the Act of Union, we were 20% of the UK population. We're now 8% of the UK population. Right. Yes. Well, it's because your best people came to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> of course, can't that's it. <laughs> can't argue with you there. Um, <laughs> like to know a wee bit more about um, your view of the, the the way that the economy is run in New Zealand. I mean, you're an OECD member. Would you describe the economy as traditionally neoliberal, or do you think it's slightly different from 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 what we what we have in the United Kingdom? Right. So in 1984, New Zealand described its economy as Fortress New Zealand. So if you wanted to import goods from New Zealand, you had uh, from overseas, you had to get a, a license from the government. If you earned foreign exchange, you were legally obliged to sell that to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand. So, so my father trained racehorses was one of the things he did. He won a race in Australia. And a month later, he got a letter from the Reserve Bank saying, we noticed that you have won this prize when are you bringing the money back to New Zealand? Because you're obliged to sell it to New Zealand, to the Reserve Bank. So we were described as the most tightly controlled economy in the OECD. The government elected that year was a centre-left government who leapfrogged the incumbents to take a position on the far right, and they became extremely neoliberal. And all of the economic reforms were to create a neoliberal economy. When they ran out of steam, the centre-right party leapfrogged again, and we went further to the right, and that was the benefit cuts and the change to our employment law so that trade unions were a, a pale reflection of what they had been. And that framework remains in place to the current day, really. There's been some modifications over the, the last five years, but fundamentally we are a neoliberal market economy where statute requires the government to have balanced books on average over time, where the governor of the Reserve Bank is required to prioritise price stability, where the focus of the Commerce Commission is around competitive markets. 
And one of the puzzles in the literature is why is it that an economy that was so neoliberal hasn't had greater economic success? And, and in a way, we are a lesson, I think, that that theory has its place, but adherence to that theory isn't enough to achieve well-being. And, and we are starting to, to refocus our efforts to what I think was what Adam Smith was writing about all those years ago in 1776, about you know, that, that well-being is about people having the capability to lead lives that they value. And so the proof of the pudding is in those communities, are people able to lead good lives? And if they're not, then the economy is not working, it's not doing its job, and there is more work to be done. And, and there's more and more writing in New Zealand now recognizing that some of our problems about child poverty, about community exclusion, the seeds of those problems were, were sown in our reforms of the 1980s. And so we've got to go back to first principles and think about investing in education of young people, about making the most of the environment, targeting market segments that value the way we produce our food, not just the food and fiber that we produce, and, and investing more in, in creating and using knowledge that fits our local economy rather than seeing ourselves as, you know, universities contributing to the international literature because of the kudos that brings to science without at the same time reflecting the interests of the taxpayers who are paying our salaries. I think also as well that governments in, in all countries should be considering their worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario has come along for Ukraine. And in Ukraine, they are being attacked by a much larger neighbour. Now, if you are in that worst case scenario, do you want a population that is healthy and educated or not? It's very well, simple to me. Well, I, 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 surely most governments should see that that has to be their function is to ensure that they have that in their countries, their respective countries. Yes, and, and even in the best case scenario, you know, if you're you're leading a good life as a nation without having to worry about your neighbours, you still want people to be educated and healthy and leading good lives. And in a way, that's what I associate with Scotland. You know, you have your own education system, as I understand it, and, and you know the value of people learning what they are good at and then discipline, you know, discovering what they're good at, disciplining those abilities, and then being able to display those abilities in meaningful work. And, and that's at the heart of the well-being economy. And, and if communities are excluded from that process, then we as a country have a responsibility to apply our collective intelligence and financial resources to address that issue. I agree. Two, two points I'd like to pick up on there, Paul. The, the first one is I would certainly agree with you that the, the seeds were sown for the problems that we have now um, with this onset of the neoliberal age and, and the rising inequality, but also the damage to our natural environment 
has been has been accelerated by the you know the march of capitalism into into the and into natural capital and, and doing all the damage there. So I think that you know you said it's in the literature, but I think that's going to be be much more obvious um, to people over the next five ten years the damage that this neoliberal approach has done. And the second thing I wanted to say was this idea of the Scottish economy, and I think big bit of credit to go to the Scottish government is how they've tried to develop a very broad economy. You know, their latest reset, their latest white paper has focused on uh, several industries which are doing well, but they also want to concentrate on growth industries that, are, that should be doing well. And I think this is really, you know, really to, to their testament and uh, to to be doing that. And it's they're they're doing that with, they're doing this without the ability to invest the Scotland's currency because they do have to work to this fiscal constraint that they have. And um, my, my one kind of strategic question on New Zealand economy, which is similar to Scotland, was how do nations like ours, small kind of island nations, how do we how do we transition from an economy that isn't just about exports? Or is that just something we've got to rely on for the next 50 to, to 100 years? Will we always be export-led nations? Uh, well, I think there isn't any country that doesn't think about exports. Uh, the, the economies of scale means that if you are good at something and you can be better at that and attract market share globally, the, you know, th this is a good thing. And, and when you think about 10 billion people living on a finite planet, we want those resources to be within planetary boundaries which means more and more we are concerned about encouraging individuals, about encouraging firms, about encouraging communities, about encouraging regions to do what they do best, better. And it's the only way we're going to be able to support 10 billion people on this planet. And I think one of the pathways to the future is going back to Adam Smith's original vision for the entrepreneur serving the local community by bringing together resources in a way that delivers increased capabilities to people in the community. And, and so the, the, the business person, I, I think that's a, a noble profession myself. You know, if, if, if you are paying a living wage to your staff, and you are taking care of your natural environment, and you are producing goods and services that people use to create lives for themselves and their families and their communities that they value and have reason to value, that's a great thing to be doing. And the, and the trouble comes when you move away from that vision to how can I extract as much financial value from the environment as I can for my own personal enjoyment and spending. And, and that's what the neoliberal vision has really encouraged, I think. And, and so we see you know, farmers being incredibly wealthy and their waterways uh, are turning to yuck. And so that's, but then you see other farmers who are as worried as I am about the environmental consequences and are desperate to find scientific and financial solutions where they can produce food and fiber for the world in a way that respects the local environment. And, and that's my day job at the moment is working with people who share that vision of this is what it means to create value not just in financial terms, but in environmental, social, cultural terms, 
by bringing together resources in a way that respects the environmental and planetary boundaries. I think that your group are going to have a lot to teach us by the sounds of it. That sounds great. I'm really interested in this. I've just been um, allotted onto a board um, that's uh, Northeast Agriculture. So um, yeah, I'll be I'll be watching carefully what you have to say. Yeah. Well, before before we let you go, I was just keen to get your view and opinion on Scotland, Scotland's economy. And you know, we we the Scottish government often says we'd like to be a little bit more like New Zealand. Um, is that kind of reciprocated? Um, is there things that that that, that New Zealanders see in the Scottish economy that that they quite like, or Scottish society? And then finally, kind of, what's your view of Scotland within the United Kingdom and how that relationship works? So Scotland and New Zealand were both founding members of the Wellbeing Economy Government Partnership, and I think at the the top level there was mutual respect for adopting a vision around wellbeing and the expectation that the two leaders would learn from each other on what is a new journey for everybody. Um, I think that that comment you made about similar sized populations and this wonderful natural environment that's so much a part of our heritage, I think that brings us close together. Um, we're, we're always competing on the rugby field from time to time. Um, I, I, I don't know so much about the detail of Scottish policy, but the wellbeing economy framework with its visual representation of the breadth of indicators that make up the wellbeing vision that really resonated in New Zealand. And, and I think in New Zealand, we tend to think, I, I, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, we tend to think of Scotland and Wales in the same sentence. And, you know, the Welsh have got their Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and Commissioner, and Scotland's got this Wellbeing vision. And the thought in New Zealand was, that's, that's us, that's what we're trying to do. And so small economies that are revisiting fundamental principles about how to design an economy to deliver well-being that respects planetary boundaries and includes everybody, we're a family, aren't we, these, these small countries? And Scotland and New Zealand are certainly members of that family. Yeah, and that, that's why we've invited you onto the Small Nation series to talk about New Zealand. Um, Paul, that's been really interesting. Us, thanks so much for that overview, and, and best of luck with all your work. It sounds fascinating and, and really valuable. Well, thank you very much for your hospitality. I've enjoyed this talk. Thank you so much. So interesting. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Bye now. Bye. It's one of the ten most traded currencies. Yeah, so it's um, it's 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 free free floating now, and it's one of the ten most traded currencies. Yeah, yeah, that's important for people to know that a small country has that um, status. Well, Karen, what did you think of our interview with uh, Paul? Well, it was fascinating for me. I, I have an interest in food and agriculture anyway, so um, really interesting story about the uh, milk, the expansion of milk farming and how that had uh, huge problems as far as environmental degradation were concerned and that they hadn't really thought that out before that expansion happened. And this is so important when you're thinking about a complex system like an economy.
Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I've been reading quite a lot. I'm just reading George Monbiot's book, um, Regenesis, which is, you know, about the damage that agriculture is doing to the land. So I kind of like, you know, what must be happening in an economy that's almost exclusively about taking from the land. And, you know, this idea of sustainable farming can be done, but over a much longer period of time. I mean, how do you do that when you've also got to earn as much money as possible? You know, that's a really difficult, uh, difficult situation to be in. And Paul has kind of said, you know, that's the problems that they're, they're, they're having. And, um, you know, the farmers are trying to do as much as possible. And when an economy is just based on the relationship with the land, you know, that's bound to cause problems. I actually didn't realise that New Zealand was so... Um, dominated in, in terms of exports by what comes from its land, and, and as Paul said, it's quite it's quite um, unusual in the in the OECD countries that it relies so much on land based as part of its economy. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, but it has a large land mass in comparison to its population size as well. So the population in and of itself are not making large demands on the land. I I, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's huge. It's three. I think it's three or four times the size of Scotland, and I'm sure much of it is, um, um, you know, no one can no one can live on it. But a third of the land being given over for conservation is a huge area as well. Uh, we touched a little bit on this idea of death by distance, which was it's really difficult to have an economy that that works well when it's got to send stuff such so expensive to send stuff i thought that was quite interesting and he also mentioned that in a slightly different context and this is happening in australia as well which you know is a huge landmass is that um the population is moving towards either very small or huge cities and it's the country it's a, it's the kind of towns in the middle that are really struggling because they're so far from everywhere. If you've got a small town, you need everything, and that's really expensive. And you've also got to be connected to the the, the grid and the sewage system. And, and he was saying that's a problem um, in New Zealand. So that's similar, that kind of death death by distance. And you know, I would hope that wouldn't be an issue in Scotland. But I know you've raised concerns that it is difficult to to, to fill posts in certain parts of certain parts of Scotland where people in the central belt would just assume that you know every post in a doctor's surgery was full or you know every every bar or cafe was was fully staffed is that something you're seeing you think it's similar yeah i mean there's you know we i'm i'm also involved in the integrated joint board as well which is the collaboration between councils and um and the national health service um, so the Scottish government are given the money uh, to create posts, but they can't find people to fill those posts. And then also I'm listening to Radio Scotland and uh, women talking about how they can't get health care when they're pregnant and, you know, women giving birth on the side of the road because the hospital facilities are not there in, in further up in the northeast. Um, and and also as well, I have a friend that lives in Shetland, and they they were expecting twins, so they travelled to Edinburgh to have those twins. So mm. we don't have enough healthcare practitioners in in the northeast of Scotland. Um, so it's it's not a case that the the Scottish government are not trying to make that happen. The people are not there. Those people don't exist. You you can't magic them up with money. 
Yeah, um, yeah, and not being in charge of um, immigration is obviously a huge barrier to that. And also being able to pay these people and um, with your own currency is is another barrier that's just so difficult for a you know a monetary constrained um, country. Right, to that, that 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 thing of losing our population is really important to me because when you look mm. at that on a, a simple GDP level, the average income at the moment is. 32 something like that 32,000 pounds a year but you, you double that population and that's not even bringing you up to 20% of the UK population what would that mean that if those people still lived here if mm. those people were still working in the healthcare service um you know it's it's uh, it's you know but really we 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 have suffered in Scotland from Brexit from that that decline of population and the population not coming over from other countries yeah, well, Paul was certainly saying they they are aware of that in New Zealand, and they're they're actively trying uh, to increase the population, which Scotland would be doing um, if we weren't part of the United Kingdom. And the final point that I picked up was um, we often look at New Zealand and say, "Well, that's a great economy. Let's copy that." You know, just uh, and in the same way you hear a lot of people talking about Ireland, but you know, when we had David McWilliams on here, he was saying, "Hey, it's not." You know, it's, it's what's and all. You know, there's huge problems with Ireland. And, and Paul discussed some of the huge problems with New Zealand. And for me, it, it, it really brings a, you know, just a sense of realism to the independence for Scotland that we've got to look at taking over our economy, that it will be difficult and there will be challenges. And this idea that you flick a switch and suddenly you become a successful nation, that's, that's not what's going to happen. It's difficult in the United Kingdom, incredibly difficult, and will hopefully be a little bit easier. But it's certainly not a panacea. And I thought that was really interesting to hear Paul say, yeah, we've got problems. But as we've identified, they've got much more of the levers to actually try to solve the problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I don't know if our listeners are aware, but the Scottish government did publish um, a paper at the beginning of last week, I think it was, um, time is flying for me, so <laughs> much faster than it was before. But it says quite categorically in that, that paper published by the Scottish Government that under independence, Scotland will have full control of fiscal powers and the ability to make its own choices in, in taxing and spending. So that is pretty categorical. That's there. Um, yeah, and and that would make a that would make a whole, a, a huge difference. Well, I really enjoyed that a little bit of it about um, New Zealand. It's a place I'm sure, like most people, if they haven't visited, it's kind of on most people's bucket list, isn't it? It must be an absolutely beautiful place, and um, beautiful place to visit. Um, it was interesting to hear how many Scots have headed headed over there as well. The best according to Paul. Um, I think there's still a lot of pretty good people left in Scotland as well. And I'm sure he would agree with that. Um, Kieran, thanks very much. Um, hope everyone enjoyed that episode. And um, until next week, bye now. Bye-bye.